0: Hi, I'm Lisa Fields, the founder and the president of the Jude 3 Project. I'm so excited that you're tuning in for another week of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I want to thank all of our Monthly supporters and our one time givers, we greatly appreciate your support. We could not do what we do without the generosity of people like you. Every gift helps equip, and we're so thankful that you help us to carry out the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project. For those who aren't a monthly partner, please consider becoming a monthly partner by going to jude3project.org and hitting the donate tab. You can either do it electronically or you can send it in by mail. The address to mail it in is available there as well. This week, we're continuing to play Courageous Conversations 2019. The Divided Mind of the Church is this week's topic. I moderate this panel and we have four dynamic panelists, Dr. Walter McRae, Dr. Frank Thomas, Brian Loritz and Dr. E. Dewey Smith. I hope you enjoy it and thank you again. For listening to the Jew3 Project podcast. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project.
1: Chicago, Illinois. I'm uh, pastoring Greater Union Baptist Church on the west side. Um, Yeah, best side. (laughs) Yeah, I have a, a BA degree in Biblical Studies and Christian Education from Trinity College in the early 70s. Since then, I've been doing independent study and research. Was awarded uh, an honorary doctorate degree by the Chicago Baptist Institute for my studies on the black and African presence in the Bible. And I am the president of the National Black Evangelical Association.
2: Brian Loritz, I pastor the Abundant Life Christian uh, Church in Mountain View, California, right there in the Bay Area. I um, did my bachelor's degree at Philadelphia College of Bible. I did my master's degree from Talbot School of Theology, and I'm currently working on a doctorate of ministry degree. I'm A. Dewey Smith, a pastor of House
3: of Hope here in Atlanta, a graduate of Morehouse College with a B.A., uh, D. Men from United Theological Seminary, Uh, studied at ITC, and uh, also Southern Christian University, where I received my master's, preaching for 31 years, and uh, serving
0: as an adjunct professor as well in the area of preaching and leadership. Honored to be here. Awesome to have this distinguished panel. Um, I can't take the credit for this title. This title comes from um, Dr. Raphael Warnock's book, The Divided Mind of the Black Church, which is an excellent book that I recommend all of you read. Um, In Dr. Warnock's book, The Divided Mind of the Black Church, um, he asks this important question Does the gospel mandate insist that the church organize its institutional life so as to address itself primarily? to the slavery of sin or the, sl- or the sin of slavery, how would you respond? Uh,
2: yeah, so I, I would say that is, um, it's a great question, Lisa. I would say um, it presents kind of an either or framework where the gospel rightly understood, it's a both and framework. What I hear in that question is orthodoxy versus orthopraxy and it's both. So when Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. That's vertical. But the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's horizontal. Or John says, how can I claim to love God whom I don't see, yet hate my brother whom I do see? So here, the the framework is always vertical and horizontal. If you took Ephesians chapter 2, vertical verses 1 through 10, saved by grace through faith. But then in verse 11, he jumps into the ethnic implications of that. So I would say the gospel knows nothing of vertical reconciliation without addressing the issues that divide us horizontally.
0: Anybody else want to respond to that?
2: I I, I agree with
4: uh, the commentary, and I think that the way we live tends to be either or, or too much of our living isn't either or. So I think that the question is being raised also to help us discern how we are living, that we tend to live predominantly in social justice gospel or predominantly in, you know, salvation, you know, by grace, by faith gospel, and the gospel is really whole.
1: Yeah, it's holistic. Yeah, I'm I, I, uh, trying to recover a concept called gospelizers. Um, holistic good news messengers of uh, Jesus Christ that that deals with uh the salvation of the soul and the salvation of the whole um Jesus said the spirit of the lord is upon me for he has anointed me to gospelize the poor full stop now all the rest social justice uh is is the explication of gospelizing the poor that's so very important uh, because it's a holistic, you trace it through the New Testament, it's a holistic concept. Uh, God is concerned about the soul, and salvation, but he's concerned about the whole of one's life and, and where one lives. Yeah. Yeah, I
3: think the challenge is how we define the word gospel. Um, are we looking at gospel from its uh, perspective as Jesus taught it or are we looking at gospel from the perspective of an Americanized Republicanized gospel Mm -hmm. and seemingly to me uh, most of what is being perpetuated now uh, even in African American spaces, faith spaces is a gospel that has been passed bequeathed to us uh, by the oppressors and as a result We've now taken on uh, the mentality of the oppressor that's right and so as a result we really don't know what the gospel is right. so I think there has to be a redefinition and c- because language determines culture yeah. and so I think when we say gospel that means different things from different people
2: yeah. yeah and if I could just in all caps just support that see I, I think this conversation has white theological fingerprints all over it uh, what I mean by that is all roads lead back as it relates to the genesis of this question to the early 20th century and the fundamentalist modernist modernist controversy. Where basically you had this great divorce in the church where fundamentalists says, no, the gospel's just vertical. So let me just go learn truth, learn truth, learn truth. And, of course, they didn't march in the streets with King or stand up against injustice or any of that the modernists, which their progeny we would call liberals or progressive, they said, no, the gospel's all horizontal. But because they had no vertical truth to be buttressed to, they lost their gospel effectiveness in the world, right? But these were conversations that began in in, in, in the white evangelical church. The black church did not have the luxury to go down the either or route. So we had to both preach a robust gospel every Sunday that led you to the cross and low-key adopt kids and feed and all of that stuff. So I I, I think it's important to give that historical perspective.
4: You know, from my perspective, I, I just believe that all of us use the word gospel, but we're talking about different things. You know, which gospel, whose gospel, and, I think that we uh, overlook the fact that even in the New Testament, Paul had a gospel Mm -hmm. and Peter had a gospel Mm -hmm. and they were divided minds. Mm. And that acts 15, the church had to come together Mm -hmm. and settle the matter. And they came up with, you know, what's good to the Holy spirit in us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I wonder, did, you know, this is just a crazy question. Did Peter, (laughs) stop preaching his gospel or so when we say gospel we're all not talking about the same thing right right. and so my argument is that what we tend to do based upon our lived experience the neighborhoods we come out of the places we come out of the people who taught us we take one set of scripture and give it priority Mm -hmm. and that priority becomes our theology Mm -hmm. and then we preach our theology and so we have a whole lot of gospels. We have a prosperity gospel. We have a denominational gospel. You know what I mean by denominational gospel? I was a member of a church, and 65 people left because a church across the corner was preaching Jesus only. That mm-hmm. baptism um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was not baptism. You had to be baptized in Jesus' name. If you hadn't been baptized in Jesus' name, you ain't been baptized. 65 people. Members of the church left and went over there. and said they would never been baptized because they had been baptized. Mm-hmm. So I call that a denominational gospel. So when we say gospel, which gospel are we talking about? And I think that many places are, you know, there. Yeah.
1: Let me stop. Coming. Yeah, or how is that gospel manifested in a particular setting? Uh, I think because um, we can get into that secular, secular dichotomy. Um, The gospel is spiritual, but the gospel is also social. The gospel is eternal, (laughs) all right? So you start with, and and there are certain beliefs um, uh, of gospel, Uh, Jesus died for our sin. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day and he was seen by a whole bunch of folk. That's uh, the the gospel uh, didactical as we teach it. Amen. And high points. Uh, But the gospel is also back to Galatians. Paul telling Peter, you hypocrite. (laughs) You hypocrite. You didn't follow through on what you believe. And Paul said, I don't care about them pillars in the church. So-called. Uh, and, and, and Paul held Peter's feet to the fire. All right, so, so Peter had the truth, but he wasn't fleshing it out like he should. Anybody so, want to comment on
4: that? Okay. So my, my reflection about divided mind is, yes. is it's always been a divided mind in yes. the church mm-hmm. about the gospel. Because the gospel is an event. The gospel is a happening. Christ (laughs) coming into time. Yes. Changing, giving all of us a new future. And the scriptures are trying to catch up with the event. Right? Mm. So, the way that I try to look at it is, I'm on the social gospel liberation black theology side. How did I get there? I was thinking about this as I was reading A Divided Mind. When I was six years old, we had moved into a white neighborhood. And the white people, this is the south side of Chicago, started moving in droves. My mother put out a Santa and painted the Santa black. I'm talking 1966, mm-hmm. 65, I'm talking, about, you know, back here. And people would stop and make comments, and, and they were angry. I saw that. So when I come, based upon my African-American lived experience, I believe very definitively that if the gospel is not liberative in mm-hmm. spiritual and social, then it's not the gospel. That's right. But if I make my gospel the only gospel, Mm -hmm. then I run the risk of putting in cultural dominance. Can I say that, Lenny, shut up? Yeah. So the Mm -hmm. Southern Baptist, this is unfair, not the Southern Baptist. There was a statement released about social justice. And the statement said, in essence, that social justice was a distraction from the gospel of Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
4: Now you don 't have to agree with social gospel, but to say it 's a distraction from the gospel to me, that runs the risk of running your cultural dominance next to or into the gospel dominance that 's what I mean mm-hmm. So let me stop there because y 'all help me am I if you think no. I'm on another planet uh,
2: no, what I hear you saying, and I think it 's something that, that all of us need to. Um, need to settle in, and, and this is not a critique at all, it's, it's impossible to do hermeneutics, to do theology, without some semblance of bias, right? So that experience of the Black Santa and the reaction to it shaped you. Mm-hmm. The problem becomes so when I, I, I teach preaching at a seminary and um, it's a mostly white, most of my students are white, First day of class, first exercise, I say, it's it's a class called Preaching Reconciliation. How do you preach in such a way that's conducive to draw a multi-ethnic audience? And the first exercise I say, what's black preaching? And they'll raise their hands. What's black theology? They'll raise their hands. Then I'll say, well, what's white preaching? What's white theology? Silence. It's, it's hard to describe what you have normalized. It's, it's like asking a fish to describe water. So the problem isn't bias. It's when I don't see it, and then I couple it with power.
4: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. That's, right.
2: that's the problem.
4: Right,
2: right,
4: that's it. That's it. Anybody want to add anything
0: to that?
4: Well, and then name God, you know, you name your power base as God. You know, you name your place of authority. So if we're going to be in these kind of conversations, I think that we have to be able to name our own theology. We have to name our own, the sources, our experience, and then we can be in some level of dialogue. That's right. But if we normalize and I say to a person, my gospel is the only gospel,
1: then I think that's arrogance and pride. Yeah. Is absolute a better word? Than normalized.
0: Yeah, you're helping me, yeah.
1: Making it absolute. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think a, a good follow up question because I think um, when we're thinking through this and thinking about the attack on uh, focusing on the social aspects of Scripture, um, I think about the slave Bible. And it seems like, even though sometimes evangelicals suggest that they are for the whole the whole canon of scripture, their framework still seems slave Bible-ish,
2: mm-hmm.
0: where the old Test- most of the Old Testament is thrown out, and there's a hyper-focus on the New Testament apart from the old. And if you look in the Museum of the Bible, the highlighting of how mm. the, I believe it's 1890s, slave Bible, which the, all the liberation passages are taken out. So it seems to be that the framework in our conservative spaces it's still kind of slave Bible-esque. Would you, how would you, would you, what are your thoughts on that? Anybody?
3: I think when you look at you know, watershed moments in terms of uh, the evolution of Christianity, particularly in our context, when we talk about Romanization, Europeanization of the faith in terms of its characters, in terms of the principles, being principles that were espoused to basically maintain the empire. And so what has happened is Pharaoh uh, always will have difficulty in seeking to bring equality to everybody. And I think what has happened is, as I said earlier, in America there is a fear and a dominance. Mm-hmm. I think when we look at the scriptures in and of themselves, when you talk about people dominating other people mm-hmm. and the usage of of violence for the purpose of subjugating other peoples mm-hmm. and other groups. And I think what has happened as a consequence is faith and the religious religion in terms is now complicit with the political empire mm-hmm. to maintain mm-hmm. control. Right. And anything that's an affront or anything that may be a threat to that is problematic.
0: Yeah.
3: And so mm. and so, what happens now, this whole thing of piety, this whole thing of um, ethical morality and more relativism now is more on the scene even in terms of our present day because. With the with the fear that the majority has and that's why i think even with president trump so many people are able to look beyond whatever because even in terms of what he has done for the furtherance of oppressive policies and theologies mm-hmm. and so that's why many of persons who are in evangelicalism mm-hmm. are now sold out they've sold mm-hmm. uh out, you know the, they received 30 pieces of silver because oh. They don't want anything that's going to be an <clears throat> affront to that power base, that's and right. so it's about hushing our voices up, or it's invite. It's about inviting people to the White House uh, who look like us, who are going to blow smoke and continue to uh, be Amos and Andy and tap dance uh, for 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 a nation, yeah. even in, in, from a theological perspective, and so that fear is still there, and so it's yeah. about hushing the voice. Of, of the emancipators and liberators. Mm-hmm. And so even though the canon, uh, that slave Bible is not there no longer,
1: the customs and the spirit of it yes. is still very much alive. Right. The, uh, and, 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 and Trumpism, you know, this didn't start with Trumpism. Um, it's a long stream of white supremacy, racism, Uh, white nationalism, white male rulership. Uh, One of my mentors, William Hiram Bentley, said that um, early on, Europe for almost a thousand years interbred with itself about 960 years, I think he said. And they during that time where they inbred among themselves, they developed an ideology to conquer the world. And and out of that white supremacy uh, came colonialism and all the rest that flows from that. And we call it ideology and they stamped God's approval on it. Use the word to stamp God's approval on it. A perversion of the word. One of my pastors used to call it, he said it wasn't theology. Because theology is what is true to God. It was ideology. All right. And that's what we're seeing manifested in Trumpism. Trumpism could not be what it is. Except that loyal base. who Who Adhere to the president who said that he could shoot somebody down in Times Square and his base would still be with him. There's something ungodly and apostate among white evangelicals who adhere to that. All right? Yeah.
4: Lisa, can I go back to? I think the original intent or one of the points that Raphael Warnock made, has made in this divided mind is that it's impossible to do social justice work without piety, mm. and it's impossible to be pietistic and not do social justice work. Yeah. Though we've divided it amongst ourselves to be in one camp or the other, mm. the reality is when we broach it biblically or from a holistic perspective one will lead to the other and the other try to do social justice without a piety or a prayer life or a faith or devotional life and if you got a devotional life and it's just about the church and we're not able to do anything about it something is so I think that the book is trying to raise the point to us that in reality we need both so we are in the black church have a tradition because it's, it's not just there are, I don't want to say black evangelicals. That's not the that's not the way that I want to say it. There are African-Americans who adopt the same level of piety. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And there's a long history and strand of it, yes. just like there's a long history and strand of the social justice side. And so, and then black theology. So mm-hmm. I think what he's trying to tease out is this tension that has been amongst us mm-hmm. and how can we unify that's right. and come to something that's connected so we really can make a difference for black people in this country. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's helpful. Anybody want to respond before I move on to the next question? Well, maybe, maybe you'll,
2: hello? Maybe you'll get to this. Uh, later on. I, I think uh, the, the example Jesus gives us, especially pastorally, is that faithful gospel preaching, um, you're, you can't put a label on it. Meaning if, if your theology fits snugly within a conservative or a liberal framework, your theology is too small. Mm-hmm. See, I I think you you would leave some of Jesus' sermons and you'd say, I think he watches MSNBC. Mm. (laughs) Matthew 25, whatever you've done for the least of these. mm -hmm. But then you leave some of his sermons going, no, he watches Fox News. (laughs) Um, What he says about a sexual ethic. Mm. What he says about marriage and divorce. That's very conservative. So, again, I think this piety... Um, and, and justice orientation, I, I, I think it defies labels. See, I, I think some Sundays my people, a segment of my people should be frustrated with me.
4: Because
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right. my theology doesn't fit within a, a, a human category. right? right. Um, so I, I think when you, when you try to incarnate both of those robustly, um, you're going to be an equal opportunity abuser.
0: And it's, I think it's fair to say that a lot of black churches mm-hmm. transcend those binaries. Yeah. Um, they, don't, they don't even see those binaries as something that need to be even discussed. Um, why do you think that he raises that even though in the black churches that binary seems to not be, be there in a lot of black spaces?
4: My experience is that the binary is there. And I, that could be different than anybody else's experience in here. I, you know, my sense is that we, if we're not careful, we will tend toward an unchallenging pietism. Because we live in a complex world with complex issues. And so, if you make a justice move in the area of same sex, or you make a justice move in the area of the equality of women in ministry, oh, yeah, it's a whole lot of binary. Mm-hmm. You're going to get some some pushback and some boycott. Or as I know a person um, that was called to a ministry as a woman and several people, they're not coming back to the church because they called a woman. This is I'm talking about 219. I ain't talking about like... Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's a binary out there,
0: mm-hmm. and I guess the binaries for Black churches may look different because immediately when people think of social justice, they think of the poor and Black churches caring for the least of these, and not necessarily other issues that, in the more um, liberationist stream, would think that goes along with with it. So they some people have limited to just caring for the poor. Well, look, but when I'll, it comes to those issues they're
2: like, okay, that's when the binary presents itself. It's- I'll, I'll go there. Like I don't, um, I don't know how I do faithful gospel ministry in the Bay Area without handing people a Christocentric framework for engaging our friends in the gay community. I don't know how I do that. And the moment you start trying to engage... <laughs> that marginalized community in a place like the Bay Area. Because, see, churches in the Bay Area tend to be hotbeds of legalism because you get frustrated Christians who can't say what they really want to say at Google or Facebook during the week, so they'll come to your church (laughs) and they'll just vent their legalistic views, right? Um, And so we're going down this road because our church has historically been hush-hush on it. And I'm just trying to go, we've got to engage them. And if we're talking about equipping you to make disciples, you've got to figure out, based on the scriptures, how to engage people. And the moment uh, some of them who are struggling, now this is, this is how I read the scriptures, right? who are struggling in that area, who are saying, Pastor, I, I'm same-sex attracted. I am trying to live out this holiness thing. Um, That's fine for me. Because I got stuff I struggle with too. Mm. And I will struggle with till the day I die. We all got stuff that we struggle with. The key Mm -hmm. word is struggle. Well, the moment I start saying, okay, you're struggling well, you can have a position, whatever, in the ministry. Now some folk that you thought were gospel people who are watching all of this, the binary starts to emerge, to your point. Whatever that issue may be, it could be women in ministry, it's there, and it comes out, and it's ugly. I
3: mean, we know the black church is not monolithic. And when you talk about, the challenge that I've seen is every context is different. You know, when I, you know, my my mother's side of the family was more Pentecostal, and so, the Pentecostal side of my family, that was not a huge focus on social justice. It was more spiritual, more eschatological, that shout praise God and let our faith and our worship you know, be the opiate for us, to help us deal with what we're facing. Um, women could be included a little more to a certain extent. On the other side of that, education was not, was not highly prioritized. My father's side of the family is Baptist and more st- systematic, more structured, but not as much presence in terms of the movement of the Holy Spirit and the involvement of women. Mm-hmm. You go to the National Baptist Convention in the 60s, you had this big rift between Jace Jackson mm-hmm. and Dr. King. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. So you get the progressive convention that splits out of the same convention
1: mm-hmm.
3: because those binaries have existed historically. And I think to a certain extent, they still exist today. But the challenge is because of social media and YouTube, every context is different. Because now you have, I know some friends who are Pentecostal but very social justice inclined.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I know some who are more evangelical or more conservative who are about piety. And so every context is different now. And, it's, and so those lines, I think, are being somewhat erased. However, the binary still is prevalent and relevant in terms of our trying to extract it and trying to deal with it. It's very relevant
0: you uh you brought out something that uh, I want to address one of the the theme of this is bridging the gap between the church and the academy for this year and one of the things that I've noticed uh I grew up Pentecostal uh still very much in the Pentecostal church uh my father's my pastor he's right there um, <laughs> and um then I went to a, a white evangelical seminary during that time I went to a black Baptist church, so I got in I got exposed to a lot of different experiences um, throughout my my seminary life. And one thing uh, you learn in in more, uh, in spaces where people are not necessarily um, fans of the academy is that seminary is, I'm sure you've all heard it, cemetery. Um, And there's this, in our churches, this divide between the pew and the pulpit where preachers will get seminary training and then feel like, there's no relevancy to the people. So there's a divide between the pulpit and the pew. How do we bridge that gap with our theological training where we bring people along the journey with us and don't feel the need to divorce what we learn in the academy from what we preach on Sunday and have integrity? Um, Because I think one of the challenges is I can believe a certain thing, but I'll preach another for the sake of the congregation, but I don't really believe it. How do we bridge that gap?
2: Well, first I, I would say, I think every pastor, especially new pastor to a given context, that's true of. Where, where I walk in as a new pastor in a congregation and maybe there's 80% alignment. But there there's some things where I'm going, I, I've got a different view on this. And I want to help shape and move this group of people to go in this direction that they're not used to. And I'm going to have to exercise some diplomacy to get them there, whatever that issue may be. You may walk in and um, you want more of expressive worship or maybe you're trying to move more of a charismatic direction. Maybe you want to implement more women into whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. I think every pastor, when you walk into a situation, it's a fixer-upper. (laughs) <laughs> honestly and that doesn't make me fake that doesn't make me disingenuous um there's some things where i got where i say as a, as a leader that's a year five thing mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get to that in year five i'm gonna bite my tongue right now but we, we're gonna get to that year five years whatever it may be long-range plan. So i i would say that's most pastors nurse that kind of tension that's right
1: and it's one thing to delay a revelation. <laughs> and it's another thing to go opposite what you've learned. All right. Jesus said to his disciples, I got a whole lot to say to you, but you can't deal with it now. Mm. But later on, you'll be able to deal with it. <laughs> you see. And so it's progressive revelation yeah Yeah, before the congregation and and I think all of us ministers um, we have to be careful about trying to uh, careful of bypassing church trying to get to church bypassing persons who are right there in my face whose church immediate ministry versus pursuing the ideals that I have of what church ought to be. You see, um, I think the Lord would have us to, to bloom where we're planted and to deal with ministry that's right in our face. All right. And believe in God that he will take the church to another level in his good time, in his good way, but I can't walk over Uncle Jimmy, and I can't him in Aunt Jane, because I'm catering to this elusive ideal of what the paradigmatic church is and ought to be i 've got to minister to my fathers and my mothers, yeah
3: let me say unfortunately, in the African American church in too many instances, in too many instances in too many places, the African American church unfortunately is the only place that you can go in some quarters and leave your brain at home mm-hmm. and um, and so um, James Cone said, uh, talked about the importance of that being a Socratic moment in the church. And I think when we we talk about bridging the gap between the ecclesial and the academic communities, one of the things that I've noticed in my own context, and I can't speak for everybody, I'm just speaking my own experience, is a lot of times persons within the academy are so frustrated with the church that they're not a part of it. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm, And so it's difficult
3: to transform something that you're not a part of. That's That's Right. right. In other instances, you have pastors and leaders in African-American church, unfortunately, because there is no set standard of credentialing Mm -hmm. for a nation in some places. Uh, Some of our more systematized denominations have credentials and prerequisites, but unfortunately a lot of more congregational churches, you, you can fall off the back of a collard green truck and if you've got a good tune you know, and and you can pull it. You you know, you you, you can get you can get called to a church. Mm. And uh, and so what has happened when you look at I'm I'm speaking African American churches.
1: Mm.
3: Sometimes when you notice televangelism and the uh, popular ministers and preachers and bishops, you know you know, the top ten in terms of notoriety and popularity, eighty percent of them have no seminary training. Seven yeah. or seven percent of them have no baccalaureate degree. Now, I'm not I'm not espousing that God can't use you yeah. unless you're trained. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm, I'm saying is sometimes it's hard to champion education mm-hmm. if that's not been your experience or it's also difficult for you to be inviting and engaging to the academic community if you've gotten what you've gotten without it. Mm-hmm. And so because of fear on the side of those who are not educated mm-hmm. and frustration on the side of those who are academically involved, as a result we keep missing each other and there's some strength and power Mm. that can come as a result of that merger Mm. but we continue to miss it because it has become more incarnational and it has to be a hybrid approach to it and unfortunately we don't see that happening in too many instances in terms of mainstream churches.
4: I want to do from the seminary side It's, it's not a secret that in many places a lot of seminaries are going through very difficult times shrinking selling buildings because the educational model that we're offering is really not sufficing for this moment and so we need a level of creativity Mm -hmm. about the programming and the degree programs and some of that is happening all Mm -hmm. around and so One of the things that I'm excited about is that we tried to do a PhD program that was connected to the church around a concept that we call practitioner scholars. Mm -hmm. That just because you're a practitioner does not mean that scholarly questions don't arise out of your praxis and practice of ministry that you want an advanced degree to deal with. Mm -hmm. So just as a quick, just as an example, uh, in our PhD in preaching, you can't graduate from the program if you don't go out and in your community teach two classes, preferably to non-seminary trained preachers, because we're not gonna play this, you gotta have a $3,000 class right. to get us while you know we'll beat up people for who they're watching, but if the only way that you can get this level of education is I paid $3,000 for a seminary class and we're sitting up in, in the ivory tower, no, we got to go out to the community we gotta, we gotta take, you know, so you can't even, you can't graduate from my, if you don't do two classes in your community, preferably for people who are non-seminary trained and teach preaching to them, because, I'll stop, let me stop that.
2: So, <laughs> one of the things um, that I felt personally passionate about when it, as it relates to the academy, um, pastoring in a multi-ethnic environment. Um, I intentionally started a residency program. Mm-hmm. See, I, I feel like um, you know, there's two kinds of hospitals. There's, there's the service-oriented hospital that just says, we're, we're gonna deal with the issues that you have and we're going to minister to those needs. But then there's teaching hospitals. Mm-hmm. Where teaching hospitals says, not only are we going to service your needs, but we're going to create a space for those who, who need to grow in their gift mm-hmm. for, them to, for them to practice on you. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's the model all churches should go for, mm-hmm. is the teaching hospital model. Mm-hmm. By the way, the black church I grew up in, that's what they did. You know, uh, that's Youth Sundays. Uh, where they would let me graciously at the age of seventeen practice mm. my gift of preaching, and um, most musicians started out there. I think one of the disservices the mega church movement has done is in our effort to be so perfect and polished mm. Mm. we 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 don 't allow the younger generation venues mm. to grow in their gift oh, right. mm. see i I think that's a major problem. Right. Major problem, and the traditional black church. I mean, you start. I, I remember five-year-old kids banging on drums. Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's where, where where you did all that. When I pastored, when when we launched our first residency program in Memphis, Tennessee, I was unashamed. We're going after minorities. And I would stand them for my congregation, and I would say, "I need $150,000 mm-hmm. to send these black preachers to school, mm-hmm. and we're gonna give them a stipend. Mm-hmm. Easiest money I've ever made, mm-hmm. because I think I attached it to a justice piece, mm-hmm. right. and it was it's a form of reparations." Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> It's a form of reparations. <laughs> I need you to help me close that educational and economic gap wow, by right. taking that money mm-hmm. and sending these people of color right. to school. And I, I think if you've got the means to do that as a pastor, to encourage your people, it, 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 that's the easiest fundraising you'll ever do. And I'll, I'll stop right there.
0: I'm all down for reparations. <laughs> 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 If you're in here or you're watching on live stream and you wanna help a young black girl pay off her student loan, <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of reparations I'm looking for today. Um, <laughs> we are gonna take some questions uh, from our, our audience. One of them is it seems like a lot of people want to talk about the gospel again. How can, what, is there a definitive gospel, is there a definitive definition for the gospel?
4: Um, How, people ask, is there a definitive translation? And I heard Fred Craddock say this, all of them will save you if you live them.
1: Translation.
4: So rather than argue about the King James, the New International, all of them will save you if you live them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So whatever gospel that you see, if you live it, if I see social justice or black liberation theology and I live that thing to the fullest, I'm going to come to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because I'm gonna run up into powers and principalities and rulers of this darkness, the prince of the air. Oh, I, I, I know Jesus. And if you think evangelizing people and saving souls is the way, get out there and do it. Because when you get out there and do it, you're gonna run into people that's got social issues and social problems, and they're gonna ask you. So uh, my sense is, to avoid the doing, we sit around and argue about who's got the right gospel. Right. When my point is, whatever God tells you, do it. And if you get busy, and I get busy, and we get busy, somewhere, and this may be just idealism, we're going to meet in the middle somewhere. Because the gospel is going to lead you to the needs of people, or the needs of people going to lead you to the gospel.
1: Yeah, I uh, I, I use my point of departure, Luke four eighteen, what Jesus said when he come to Nazareth and open up the scroll, Isaiah 61, and say, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he hath anointed me to gospelize the poor. I keep saying that, in Greek, verb used over 50 times, New Testament very important full stop to gospelize the poor. We say if your message is not good news to the poor it's not gospel. It must be good news to the poor. That's baseline. Recovering of sight to the blind uh, healing those who are bruised you know lifting up those who are pressed down That's gospel, that's social ministry. Behind that, someone called Jesus Nazareth manifesto. When he come home, that's what he laid on the table to the kinfolk. And um, but what he was saying and say and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he was talking about jubilee. Yes. Amen. Every 50 years very interesting we don't hear much about jubilee do we Mm-mm. Yeah, ain't too many Jewish folk or nobody else doing jubilee right. to, to set folk free pay off debts amen.
0: student loans Send oh
1: folk, folk. <laughs> yeah every 50 years family reunion right. uh, land being restored to the clan family amen Jesus came proclaiming jubilee I mean setting folk free. I call Jubilee the poor man's hope and holiday. (laughs) And it was so hot for biblical covenant people that they dropped it. Mm. They still do Passover. (laughs) Hello. Yom Kippur. Tabernacles. Yes sir. All of them. But you don't hear them talking about. I ain't getting nobody They, I ain't letting them go debt free. Right. They ain't talking about that. Right. They ain't talking about I'm turning land back over. Right. That's gospel. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? That's 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 heart gospel. That, that hits every stratum of society. Or turns everything on its head. Amen. And 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 so there is content. There is substance to gospel. Amen. but it must be good news to poor. Mm. That's the bar. Mm. Amen. Amen. We must meet the bar. If the message is not good news to poor folk, because some of these churches are catered to rich folk. Mm. Hello. Hello. Um, Listen to it. Some of our churches cater to rich folk. and, 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 and And they got seats you can buy. Amen. To sit up close to where the action is. And all of that kind of stuff. That's not. That, that, we should, our churches should not cater to that. All right. Call it what you want to call it. We must cater to poor folk. Yet did Jesus help some rich folk? Sure enough. But if you want to find them. You go down there where the poor folk are. That's where he spend his time.
4: Can I get one more response? Uh, if your gospel oppresses me. So I, I, I think there are many Gospels but they are oppressive Gospels. And my line is when your Gospel oppresses me or my Gospel oppresses you. So I wrote a line before I'll be a slave or a slave master. I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. I don't want to oppress anybody yes. with my gospel. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the, if my gospel or, you know, of course, it's easy for us to talk of the gospel oppressed, you know, black people oppressed, we oppressed, you know, we oppressed, but we don't talk about the ways in which we oppress people. Yes. And there's oppression in the black church yes. that we don't want to address. And so I think that that's the that's the standard for
0: me. Anybody else want to tackle this?
3: For, for me, I think one of the major challenges that we have is reintroducing Jesus of Nazareth as a cent- cent- central theme and focus of the gospel. Um, when we look at other passages sometimes there are times when, when you do your exegesis and your hermeneutics. you think that Jesus is in contradiction with Paul and know that's another conversation tomorrow but I just think in a real sense if we would just do what Jesus did and I just think Jesus is the hidden or the lost figure in terms of our curriculum and, our, and our, our proclamation and our ministry it's about empire, and, and gospel is supposed to be good news, but it's good news for whom? Mm.
4: That's right.
3: You know, and I think when you look at how Jesus integrated women, how Jesus dealt with the Syrophoenician woman, you know, how he, in my opinion, grew beyond the labels of his Jewish upbringing, you know, to deal with her in dehumanizing language, which was the culture of his day. But her persistence allowed him, in my opinion, to grow beyond and move beyond even his Hebrew limitations. Because if I can't die for you, if I can't see your humanity and heal your daughter, um, then how can I die for the sins of the world? And I think you're analogous to a little dog, Hmm. you know, as some people have, have interpreted that passage. But for me, Jesus has to be the center of attraction what he does with the oppressed, the outcasts, the least, the last, and the lost. And if we would introduce and do what Jesus did, I think a lot of our, we can meet more in the center yeah. and just strip ourselves from our pre-understandings, mm-hmm. our own biases or the things that, I, our own fears of each other. Because yeah. a lot of what's happening in America now is rooted in fear. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, and the basis of it is because if it's true that by 2050 that yes. whites are gonna be in a minority, in a minority I think a part of that fear is guilt, and thinking that if we ever become the minority, then they're gonna do us how we did them. And that's just kind of what I just feel. And so I think with a lot of people. But if we can reintroduce, if we, but if we can reintroduce Jesus, you know, as a cent- central focus of our faith, I believe a lot of our society issues will be
0: eradicated. Another question that came in is um, how do we address black churches that operate like white church spaces. And I'm not sure how this, what they're trying to get at here. I don't know if this black churches becoming more um, uh, leaving traditionalism and adopting fog and church in the dark and uh, different things that they feel is normalized in white culture and leaving traditional spaces or they're talking about just doctrinally. So if you could address both. Yeah, uh, that would be that'd be good.
2: You know what's what's interesting. Um, I want to be careful how I word this. I have seen. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. My Bible college experience was at an all-white institution, um, that in many regards I'm grateful for, but in many regards it took me a couple of decades to. Um, to just grow out of some bad habits that I had been given, wow. and um, it was almost like when I got there, and I write about this in my in my latest book, Insider Outsider. It's almost like when I got there, I heard stuff that I had never heard in my in my black church. Now my pastor was a was an expository preacher, uh, very solid, very biblical, but then I, I get introduced to this thing called systematic theology. Then I start hearing about dispensationalism and all this other stuff. What they didn't tell me is, you gotta be careful with systematic theology because you cannot contain the infinite God in a man-made system.
4: Yeah,
2: that's right. So you you gotta always be humble no matter what your system may be. Well, because the power dynamic was an all-white faculty pressing down their their theological perspectives to some minorities, we now got a pseudo kind of a wokeness that we said we need to go back to our black churches and educate them on some things. And sometimes I've seen individuals, minorities, who have been solely discipled by whites and there is this thing that happens to them where where they feel like a badge of their spirituality is they've got to out-white their white discipler. And then they start taking churches and inevitably they take the white fingerprints that the discipleship was marked with and then they, they subconsciously use that stuff as a standard. For so, for example, for example, um, I never heard the phrase disqualified from ministry until I got around white pastors. My, my, my never heard that phrase before. My God. The posture of the black church has always been how can we salvage this? Because it's cold out there. How can we be redemptive here? White churches just cut you. I I just disqualified from, I never heard that before. Well, now you get young black leaders who go through those institutions, get discipled, and they start mimicking that same stuff in their churches. And uh, the the havoc it has wreaked
1: grieves me. And I would add, that I think some of the root of the problem is there's not a good understanding of the black church or black churches and the role that it has played in the freedom and affirmation of a slave people here, enslaved people here in America. Where would we be if it wasn't for the black church? Invisible institution or visible institution? Where would African descended Americans be? We have to look at the black church, not just on the surface, we got to look at it historically and we got to look at it in depth. Reason for being God, one reason God raised up black church to keep us alive in America.
3: Yeah, you know, I think a part of our issue is something about our pathology that still makes us believe that. You know, the white man's ice is colder. Yes. Um, a, a lot of times I've noticed with a lot of ministries, particularly in in white churches, you have more resources. So you can invest more. You you can put fifteen, twenty million dollars in a youth facility. You can paint it and make it feel like it's a quasi Disney World. And yet when you come back home to your church and you know, to you know, friendship of Macedonia travels rest. You know, you got to go to the annex. You understand? <laughs> and, so, and so what happens when we're, when we're able to assimilate Hello. and be in those spaces are uh, the services and the quality. And so it's about skinny jeans and it's about the fog machines and the lights. And it's about heel songs. So that for us becomes the paradigm yeah. for what's correct and what's not orthodox. And so what happens, we we think that that's the way, that's the right way to do it. So we leave our practices, we leave what's important to us. And then as a consequence, we see some of them begin to adopt some of the things that we've dropped. So we, you know, we write our songs. We write, you know, so we we move from songs that have meaning and theological efficacy and spirituality, and now we all sing seven, 11 songs. We say the same seven words 11 times. And so now it all looks the same because we're trying to, you know, to integrate into something that is not who we are historically. And, And what I found is that, you know, E. Franklin Frazier talks about it, that sometimes the more affluent we become, then sometimes the more our people get disenfranchised or disheveled with the lack of what they see in our churches. And so we run to that, unfortunately, because it looks like the picture of success. Mm-hmm. And so we abandon the thing that has kept us and sustained us. And then the fact that we have to grow in our churches in terms of our theology, in terms of our practices, and then sometimes when unfortunate things happen in cases of malfeasance or other issues, we tend to create this caricature of the church and we paint all the same churches with the same brush, you know, as if every African-American preacher is a thief, every African-American preacher is driving a Bentley or a Rolls Royce, not realizing that 75 75 percent of our, 80 percent of our preachers are by vocation. vocation. Mm -hmm. But because they're not visible and seen, we paint them out with a bad brush and we damn the African-American church because of this caricature we've created by these few individuals. So I think there has to be a return to it. And the other thing I want to say, if, if these present times haven't shown us that the people we've read or places we've run to as African-Americans, if I'm going to a church and that pastor, I don't care how big the facilities are, I don't care how many ministries they have or how well the small groups are run, but if that church cannot speak to the issues that affect my teenage son, who has to be fearful of every time he gets in the car? He's going to be shot or pulled over mm-hmm. because that pastor wants to maintain the empire yeah. and not deal with the holistic reality yeah. of all who are part of that constituency. Yeah. I have major problems with that. Mm-hmm. Any black person or any minority is in a place, and that person can't speak to the whole because they're afraid of offending people. That's really not multicultural. Yeah. Don't don't show me yeah. that you have multiculturalism because yeah. you got some negroes in the choir. Yeah, Let me exactly. see how many on the finance committee, how many in, in leadership, and how many actually serving. So I think that's the piece. That we have to look
1: to. I want to,
4: speak to that. Okay. I, maybe it's my old age, but I, I, I've given up trying to convince people. Um, and I'll have dialogue. But a lot of this stuff is unconscious in people's minds. Uh, wow. You know, cognitive scientists say that 2% of our thought. Is conscious, 98% is unconscious. And our moral, va- our moral values lie in the unconscious. Right? So, talking about my mother when she painted the Santa black, right? And I, what messages I got coming out of Mississippi. They came from Mississippi. My father's number one goal in life was to get his kids out of Mississippi because there ain't nothing in Mississippi for his kids, right? So, I had all that. I got all, so yeah, I, social justice, I see it. I, I feel it. I, I get it. I get it. I get it. But at this point in my life, I'll dialogue with people. But if dialogue distracts me from the work I'm trying to do, so yeah. I'm not necessarily trying to convince white that's evangelicals. Right. I'm right. trying to outvote them in the election.
1: Yeah. Right.
4: Right. You okay. know, I, I, I'm trying, that's what I, I'm not, I have dialogue. That's right. But when dialogue reaches a point,
1: mm-hmm.
4: it's like, well, you know, well, we just need to count the votes. and and see where they are because trying to get people to be different than who they are is exhausting and so I thought the question was directed to trying to get somebody not to be who they think they need to be which is exhausting work that distracts me from the real work I've been given to do
0: This is the last question Um, we're going to end here and I think this is um, a lot of people in churches have the, uh, relate to this sentiment um, that think kind of parallel academics to modern day Pharisees that totally miss Jesus. Um,
4: so, uh, on study. How they saying academics are Pharisees?
0: No, they said, I think they're saying that the, their par- I, I, well, listen, I don't know what they're saying, honestly, listen. but <laughs> I'm trying to frame it the best way I okay, can. All right, all right. I, um, I won't respond. <laughs> I won't respond. <laughs> that I think the sentiment is that, um, that so focused on the academic that you're missing Jesus and this this uh focus around um all you need is the bible um you don't do you need a seminary really to do ministry
4: i i believe that you need some level of education that god makes possible and available for you everybody can't go to seminary but everybody can get some education That's right. Everybody should step up their educational game to the highest level yes. that is possible and available to equip themselves to give the best chance to reach people with the gospel. I, I don't, I think we live in an age, my dean says this, Dean Leah Gunning Francis, she says, we live in the age of the glorification of ignorance. We glorify ignorance now. And so I'm not saying that everybody's got to have an MDiv. I'm not saying anybody, but you, at at the level that God places you, God probably is going to put some educational opportunity. And so take advantage of it and be better so you can better minister, understand the gospel and minister the gospel to people.
2: Yeah, I would say um, I absolutely agree. For me, what's back up. So a part of my problem with the younger generation is um, they're so pragmatic. Let me just go ahead and get the degree or whatever that they shortcut some things. And for me, what seminary did, the number one thing seminary gave me wasn't Greek tools or Hebrew tools. It just gave me the discipline of study that as a pastor, I carry with me every single week. And look, I love the internet, but we've got to be careful with the internet. As someone once said, the internet is the friend of information, but the enemy of thought. Oh,
1: Jesus. Mm, mm.
2: And I'm looking at a wave of preachers who I'm not seeing a whole lot of thoughtfulness. And however you instigate that thoughtfulness, it doesn't have to be formal. I mean, they marveled at the disciples, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But you do need to have some sort of education. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: I think sometimes, if we're not careful as young ministers, sometimes if you're not properly balanced or have wisdom, the educated preacher, education can lead to a sense of elitism Mm -hmm. in terms of the local parish. Mm -hmm. And where it leads the, the young pastor, the seminarian, to develop a messiah complex. And sometimes it can make you disrespect the context of those who serve before you. Because now I'm here to say today, you know, this congregation was lost, and God birthed me in the heavens and sent me down generationally with my education. And so sometimes I think it can create a wedge. So that's the, that's one issue that I would caution. However, I think that was a time in my grandfather's day when ministers had a call from God. But didn't have the means or the ability to go to seminary or Bible college or whatever, I think in this present day, there's no reason why a young person who's been called can't be trained. I mean, if you want to get a license to be a cosmetologist in the state of Georgia, you've got to go, you've got to be an apprentice. You've got to show that you can put perm in. You can cut the hair. You know, you got to mm-hmm. serve with somebody and go to making and take the state board. If you want to be a licensed plumber, you have to go through the process. And so, you know, and for me, it's problematic when the worst thing that can happen with my barber and my cosmetologist, if they are negligent, is that I'm bald. If my plumber is negligent, the worst thing that can happen is my basement is flooded with water. If my dentist is negligent, the worst thing that can happen is I need a set of teeth. If the doctor is negligent, the worst thing that can happen is I die. But if the preacher is negligent, that can have eternal repercussions. And I just think that preparation, particularly for younger generations, information is too available. And and there's no reason why you got to invest in people. You can't stand before people have prepared. And I know the Lord speaks to us, and the Holy Spirit does call things our remembrance but you've got to put something there for the Holy Spirit to call back up. And so I just think for younger ministers, there's no reason why a young minister, those who are coming up now, can't get some formal education to prepare
1: themselves for the work of ministry. That's just my personal opinion. My, uh, my pastor used to say, learn all you can and can all you learn. Another pastor said he wrote, wrote a poem, and I can't quote it, but the idea was you learn enough to get to peak efficiency. Mm. In other words, you learn enough to serve that ministry to which God has called you to, and so that you have peak efficiency in serving those people, you know. And I think I think that's good because the academy should be a servant of the church, and not vice versa. Academy should serve the church, and I'm trying to study, Dr. Thomas, uh, uh, the history of this whole thing and the um, evolution of seminaries mm-hmm. and how they became separated yeah. so much from local congregation yeah and they became masters rather than servants of local congregation yeah. so the, the role needs to to change all right
4: yeah it, it's it's based on a 12th century model okay. of education where you pull people out you separate them you cloister them and you fill them fill their heads with Knowledge, mm-hmm. and so it's a name for it. And uh, I read an article on it, okay. but I forgot it, so I have to email. I got to dig it up, and I'll email it to you. But yes, twelfth century. Yeah. Yeah, century. You know, because the discipleship is a model of education.
2: Yes.
4: Right. Mm-hmm. So the seminary is based on a model of education that, according to the market, is not working now. Right. Because right. it's not being funded, mm-hmm. and these schools are. Most of them, many of them, not all of them, many of them are selling property, shrinking, yep. because the model of education that we're propagating is not working in the marketplace. It's not meeting the needs of the, of the students.
2: Yeah, I sit on the board of a Christian university, and it's, um, I mean, Christian universities now are charging upwards of $40,000, $50,000 a year, and we are outpricing mm-hmm. our constituency. Jeez. Right. And I actually think it's, it's good for the church, because I don't know when in church history. well, you just told us 12th century, where we said, if you want to get serious about your Bible, you have to leave the church, mm-hmm. wow. and go somewhere else to get that. I think with, with the education crisis that we're going through financially, especially in Christian circles, I think, I think it's poised to arc back mm. to where it started from, yeah. Yeah. which is uh, the merging of the academy with the local church. You know, and so much for the life of the church, uh,
4: pastors were scholars, and scholars were pastors. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at yes. some of the some of the the, the church fathers early on. They, they, there was a, mm-hmm. which is what we call the practitioner scholar model. There is, you, you can you can pastor, and you can be an intellectual. Yes. Why, why do we have to separate the two? Mm-hmm. Um, at least in my life. Um, I never wanted to separate the two because in the ministry context I was in, I was being forced and challenged to answer questions that I needed scholarship to deal with. I needed somebody that could think deeply about the biblical text and give me, for example, a a womanist, you know, theology or a womanist hermeneutic. I needed that to minister to my context. So the assumption that we have that that intellectuality is separate and distinct from the pastor
0: is a false dichotomy to make. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, we want to thank our distinguished panel. Let's give them a round of applause. All hearts and minds clear on the panel? Mm-hmm. All hearts and yes. minds clear? Okay. Churchy. Oh. Yeah. So churchy. So churchy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as you as i mentioned reparations now so uh... <laughs> thank you so much for listening to another episode of the jew3 project podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode you can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com you can subscribe on itunes stitcher in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play searching Jude 3 Project and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Three ju3project.com, hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you god bless and remember here at the jupe 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it